All right, is it working? Am I on? Can you hear me? All right. I don't know because the microphone got all changed over over here, and I don't work on this side anymore, so I don't know what's going on. I just come in and push whatever buttons I think will work. Well, we are getting ready for another episode of Spooky South Coast talking about the paranormal tonight. Our guest is Seth Breedlove. You know him from his Small Town Monster series of documentaries. We had him on the show in the past to talk about the Minerva Monster. Tonight we're going to be talking about something that we haven't visited in a long time here on Spooky South Coast, a topic we haven't discussed in, in years. That would be Mothman and all the weird goings-on in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. So we're going to be talking about all that and more with Seth Breedlove tonight on episode, I really don't know what number it is tonight. 487. 487. Usually I'm pretending to not know. Tonight I really didn't know. Episode 487 of Spooky South Coast. Hey, I don't even have the music brought up. Let's see if I can keep stretching this for a couple more seconds. <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking. So it's uh, episode 487, you said? Okay, well, it's going to be starting... Right now. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Gosler, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Stephanie Burke. And I have to, like, go backwards with the microphones tonight, and it's it's all weird. It's all messed up. Not that anybody listening cares, but... And I also no, got just a, you. I got a hot candy in my mouth. You do. You're fired. From here on out, you're done. I have a hot candy. I should spit it out, but it's so good. From the sushi restaurant down the street. It is. I've never had a after-dinner pear-flavored candy before. Listen, you needed it after what you ate. All right, I swallowed it. Swallowed oh. that sucker hole. <laughs> I know I had a... Uh, you disgusted. Oh, my God. My haircut. I look wicked hipster-ish you, right now. You do. You do. I didn't realize that. <laughs> With the... I got the, the slick back hair and the beard going. You do. Uh, oh, and the sides are shaved. I didn't realize that I walked out of my barbershop looking like a hipster today. All you need is the skinny jeans and the flannel. No, never, never. If you do that, I'm not talking to you anymore. Never. Well, uh, Walter, my barber, if you're watching, I, I didn't realize that that's the look that I ended up with. But no, this is because <laughs> I'm trying to brush my hair back, so I have to like kind of train it to start. It doesn't look again. bad. It's just not what I'm used to. Right. Hey, whatever. Go with the flow. I'm I'm hip. I'm cool. That never happens. Well, uh, we are here to talk about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night. And uh, the Red Sox schedule, by the way, came out. I have it over in the newsroom. Oh, good. So there will probably be a bunch of Saturday nights coming up where we won't be on WBSM. But Matt Costa, in his infinite geniusness, has figured out the way that we can broadcast over YouTube. Tell on me those about weeks. it. So what? We don't want to tell you about it. It's all technical. No. Fine. Okay. You don't need to know. Fine. Are you going to press buttons? There's buttons over here that have to be pressed. He figured out which ones are the right ones. And that's that all allows that us to keep doing the show. Right. You just sit there and you worry about the chat room and talking and well, we're sharing on, information. We're on Facebook Live right now, too. Okay. So. All that stuff. Geez, we're everywhere. We're everywhere. And uh, we will be joined in just a bit by our guest for tonight, Seth Breedlove. And as I mentioned in the, in the open, he has been putting out this Small Town Monster series of documentaries. Minerva Monster, that was the first. It hit huge. 
turned into a whole big thing, and that was just the first in the planned series. And they're working on the Mothman one right now. They're actually working on, and they're in post production right now. So it hasn't come out yet. So you're going to be getting kind of a sneak peek of what to expect when Seth joins us a little bit later on on the show. Now I've been researching. I'm, I'm working on another TV project, and, and one of the things that we've been looking at are towns where there's multiple haunts in a town and where they all might be interconnected. And right now they're looking for places that have uh, personal, you know, private residences, people who are having problems that want help. You know, that type of haunt is what they're looking for. So if anybody has anything... Just send me an email, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. But when you, when you look at towns where there's a bunch of weird stuff that happens in a very small area and it all seems to be interconnected, I think Point Pleasant is one of those places where it stands out as one of the communities where, yeah, a lot of weird stuff goes down there and it has to be interconnected. And so we'll get into some of that with Seth tonight. But I knew that we were – I was talking with my barber today. My barber is very interested in, in paranormal stuff, That's which awesome. is cool. And so I was the only one there, and I'm getting a haircut, and we're just talking about all these different things. And uh, as we're leaving, you know, I, I started mentioning Injured Cold, which was always like the one thing about the Mothman story that scares me more than anything is, Stephanie, are you familiar with who Injured Cold is? No. All right. You're not going to like it when we get to it. Awesome. You are not going to like this story at all. So I was talking to him about that, and then I was like, oh, I totally forgot that that's the topic that we're discussing tonight on the show. So it was just kind of a little bit of a weird synchronicity. So it's it's nice to delve into the weird stuff again. We talk a lot on the show in the last couple of years about, you know, the paranormal community and people doing the research and everything. And I, I always say this, but we got to do it. I want to get back to the weird stuff. I want to get back to the weird stories and, and the things that you just don't hear anywhere else. That's what I think has made this show so successful for so long. And I think that that's where we can entertain and inform people the best and keep our entertainment level up too, you know? I like hearing about that stuff. Stephanie, not so much. She gets weirded out. I can't help it, you know. And you will definitely get weirded out tonight when we get into that. I can't wait. And speaking of weird, it doesn't get any weirder than our usual weekly segment. Uh, that would be The Week in Weird with our paranormal news correspondent, Melody Knapp, who also makes a fine zombie. She does. We were zombie twins. That was, uh, you know, people can see the, the pictures. We put them up and we did Facebook Live videos and everything. And, we did. We had a good time. And, uh, and you know, maybe the next time we all get together, we don't have to peel our faces off afterwards. I may never do it again. What? You made a great zombie. It was a lot of work. You'll have to it do it again. It was a lot again. of work. Yeah, and, and John Brightman, if you're listening, you know, I'm still getting rave reviews from people about the work that you did. So, uh, But why don't we get a little weird? Let's do it. Is it that I hit the button? I did, okay. Spooky South Coast presents The Week in Weird with Paranormal News Correspondent Melody Knapp. And good evening, Melody. How are you? Good evening. I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? We are spectacular, and uh, and we were talking earlier that uh, you know we've we've had a couple of weeks now without the week and weird, but that's all right because you're going to make it really weird for us tonight. Of course, I am. Um, so pretty much to start it off, <laughs> I was actually sucked into that horrible hole of a click date ad 
um, which was pretty much uh, titled the, o- the Grand Opening of This Museum Start Paranormal Activity, uh, written by Kelly McClure. But <laughs> it goes on to talk about, you know, all the different haunted artifacts that are in there and how once they opened the museum, all these weird things started happening, like that one of the dolls that they have there would move and, you know, be found in different spots. And there's an oil lamp that actually, like, if you touch it, you get ill, like, violently ill. So just things like that. Now, what really made me want to talk about this article with everyone is what do we think about haunted artifacts? Because we always, you know, are dealing with, you know, haunted places and ghosts and apparitions, but... What are the odds that an entity can literally attach itself into an object and then cause things to happen there on after? Well, I can tell um. you that there's a fantastic book on the subject called Haunted Objects, I've heard of Stories it. of Ghosts on Your Shelf, written by Chris Balzano and Tim Weisberg that I think everybody should go out and read. <laughs> but Ste- Stephanie, perfect plug, perfect yes. plug. you have a lot of experience, Stephanie, with haunted items. Um, I do, actually. I do. Um, I've experienced it quite a few times. A lot of the times when people ask me to come to their house and figure out what's going on and why all of a sudden these crazy things are happening, my first question is usually, what's new? What did you bring in? What antiques? Yep. What did you pick it up at a yard sale? And usually almost, I want to say 95% of the time, it's something that just came into the house that's causing it. So haunted objects are, are a real thing. People I, don't realize it. I mean, I've got a bunch of them out in my shed that people have given me and said, hey, i got to get rid of this thing. It's causing me problems. And You're not right, my friend. No, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't, I don't bring them into the house. Too close for comfort. There's, listen, there's one item that I didn't... It's, I don't think it's in the book because I think we found out about it afterwards. Uh, Chris and I actually filmed the TV pilot or a sizzle reel for a show on haunted objects and a friend of ours had this chair that was just wreaking havoc on his life. And it was, I've, I've never seen an object change somebody as much as it did him when he was around this chair. And he was talking about how he would just sit in, it in the dark for hours and all these bad thoughts would just come into his head. And it was affecting his life and everything. And he, he had actually locked up in his parents' shop. And he brought us to go check it out. And he was afraid to go near it. And he didn't want us to go near it. And we actually saw when he was around it, his face would change. His his mood would change. And, and he, he just looked and acted different. And I actually... I asked him, I said, do you want us to take the chair with us? And he, and he said, oh, no, no, no. I, I have to be the person to protect I remember the rest story. of the world from this chair. So wow. I still want to get up my hands on it because I think it would look awesome on the stage for uh, an evening of ghost stories and New England legends. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Well, yeah, we'll carry around a haunted chair with us. We're, we're not afraid. But, um, no, this museum, I mean, a place that has a collection of all these different powerful objects i mean i would want to question was there not activity before the grand opening <laughs> i understand that was the whole point of the clickbait to get you kind of go to go through um of it but it was also the second kind of part of this is um you know what happens when you gather all of these items into one state you know what i mean <laughs> right well i mean We've seen it happen with the Warrens. We've seen it happen with John Zaffis, yep. and, and now Greg and Dana Newkirk with the Traveling Museum. You know, these, yep. these energies collect. All right. Well, uh, do you have another story for us? I certainly do. All right. 
So my second one um, is something that I think everyone's going to have a pretty big opinion on, and it was uh, titled My Problem with EMF Leaders. Uh, it was a video put out by Bill Hyland, which I can kind of go over with you guys. Um, it, in the video, he goes over, you know, the, the whole point of what an EMF detector does, but he brings up a very good point about false positives because we're using this tool... <laughs> to detect, I guess you could say, um, paranormal activity. But you've got to think about all the outside things that we have no control over that can affect us. Like, it's really good when going to determine if there's, like, a fear cage, you know, in a room that's causing people to feel uneasy and things like that. But, I mean, it's, it's not a tool that I utilize as much as other people do just because I kind of find it something that can produce um the false thought that is. Well, so, the biggest problem. What are, you, what are your thoughts on it, guys? <laughs> the biggest problem on investigations is cell phones. I mean, everybody's oh, yeah. using their cell phones and everybody's putting apps on their cell phones for investigation, and that's causing all these false positives. So you really need to be aware of that when when you're utilizing these these devices. And it's okay. Like, listen, I, you know, we tell everybody put your phone in airplane mode. It's okay if somebody doesn't. But you just have to make sure that when something's going off, that it's not their cell phone that's causing it. I would never tell somebody in an event, listen, you can't have your cell phone active knowing that your kids are home alone while you're here, you know? Like, right. you got to have a little bit of leeway for that. But at the same time, it can't be, you know, that you're just wandering around, like, texting all night or, or, you know, playing around on your phone and causing all these false positives. So that's just the number one thing I think people have to be aware of. That and the fact that just because you get a fluctuation doesn't mean that it's paranormal it's until it's repeatable and, and it's happening in different ways well originally dmf meter was used to screen out like what you're saying the fear cage and other uh, electromagnetic things wasn't used as a means of detection it was used as a means of answering what was around that could be causing it just like a flashlight would be you know used to work around in the dark now people are using them as a means of communication Right. I mean, forgive my ignorance, Moniz. It's been a long time. Were you at the Braintree Town Hall investigation? No. Okay. Well, that was the perfect example of a place where, uh, you know, EMF was a problem. People were saying that they would walk down in the Braintree Town Hall in Braintree, Massachusetts. People would walk down the stairs into the basement. And they said as soon as they walked down into that staircase, they felt like somebody was there, somebody was watching them, somebody was touching them. And so we went down there. Actually, you weren't there, but I had borrowed your Tri-Field EMF detector. Okay. And so I had had that down there. And as soon as I go down the staircase, this thing's spiking like crazy. I mean, it's up around 14, and like, when do you ever see it? And I remember I called you and I said, has this thing ever gone up this high? You said, it shouldn't be. And we happened to just walk around and try and figure it out. Well, as soon as we went around the corner into the actual basement, all of the old electrical Sub- panels. Yeah, all the stuff. It was all original 1940s wiring yeah. from when the building was built. Nothing had been replaced. Nothing shielded. Nothing shielded. All the wires exposed. And you could, it was, it was so thick you could feel it, you could sense it, and that's what people were feeling. And and I said, listen, if you want that problem to go away, you got to replace all this electrical stuff, which you probably should do anyway, because <laughs> you're going to have a fire or something with the way that it goes. So yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly it's a tool to have in the toolbox, absolutely. All right, well, do you have uh, one more story for us? All right, guys. Yeah, last but last, uh, not least, I wanted to kind of discuss. The, uh, the Week and Weird, Weird Slash, I also read an article written on the Week and Weird article about the Anderson Hotel in Kentucky. 
Um, so originally written by Jana Matthews, uh, rewritten in The Inquisitor by Bill Turner just to get proper news. But for those who don't know, uh, the Anderson Hotel was actually recently closed um, to paranormal investigations after uh, Weekend Weird actually went and investigated. Um, and there are claims of and video of an investigator being bitten, like actual teeth marks on them um, in live, live fashion. So <laughs> I guess for this one, it's um, what are our views on, you know, places closing? I mean, like, we're there to investigate, and I understand the danger, and that's something that, you know, can really shock people. Um, but if someone's willing to put themselves in that situation, like, where do we draw the line? Well, I mean, <laughs> the bottom line is whoever owns it makes the decisions. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you can you can make all the promises you want, sign all the waivers you want, buy all the extra insurance you want. If that person is uncomfortable with people coming in, they're not going to be comfortable with them coming in. I mean, a perfect example that you might not be aware of, Melody, and, and some of the listeners might not be aware of, there was a location in Rhode Island called the Lad School where people were constantly breaking in. It was an old abandoned school, and people were constantly breaking in there and investigating it. It's since been torn down, I believe. Yes. And um, But they were, you know, this was a huge problem. Well, some kids went in there one night. They broke in, and one of the kids happened to spill a container all over his crotch of acid. Ooh. Awesome. And uh, basically the acid ate away his junk. And oh my goodness. so he sued Rhode Island. He sued the state of Rhode Island because it was a state school and state property. He sued the state. And I think I want to say the number was $20 million. That's what's sticking out in my head for some reason. He sued the state and he won. Oh, my goodness. So I could be wrong on the fact. He might not have actually, uh, you know, it might have been a settlement deal or something or other. But the fact is, you know, it was determined that they could be held responsible because they let this stuff lay out, even though it was they broke in to get there. So that's a lot of the problems that a lot of people have. And, and I run into this trying to find locations for TV shows. People are like, we would have no problem if it was just you guys coming in, but then you're going to put it on television, and then everybody wants to come in. And oh, absolutely, yeah. You can't control uh, you know, a location all the time. We, I mean, Stephanie, you, you've been following this whole thing with me since – uh, the last Fort Tabor event where they've been having problems with people trying to sneak in. You know, they've had since. problems for a long time. They've and had problems at our events. Um, when Ghost Hunters went, they actually had to have three people arrested because they absolutely refused to leave um, Batter Milliken, even though they knew they were trespassing. They didn't care. The cops came and they still and now put it's, up a fight. Now it's on television. Now yes. it's been on Ghost Hunters, and it, it just yep. makes the situation worse. So, I mean, the bottom line is whoever owns it makes the decisions. And I've said this in the past. Nobody, just because you own a place that's haunted, you don't owe it to anybody to let people come in and investigate. That's, I mean, that's just the reality of it. I know, I know people that are out there in the field saying, hey, I give up my weekends all the time and spend my own money to do this. And, you know, I'm doing this for altruistic purposes and somebody should see that and let me in and do it. But the bottom line is they own it. They don't have to do anything. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there's doctors out there that, you know, would want to get into places where people are sick, but, it doesn't mean that you have to let them in just because they're a doctor. And same thing for paranormal researchers. Just my two exactly. cents. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Melody, for the news. And right. uh, should I, should we let people know about should we let people know about the new uh, news idea that we have before? Uh, let, let, let's plug this a little bit. It was actually it was it was Matt Costa and I talking last week. Matt came up with this idea. We want to make it so that listen, the weekend weird 
we've been doing it for a long time where either one of us would read the story and now we have Melody tell us the story and then we comment on it. And listen, we're not nearly as funny as and, and, and informative and, and, and inquisitive as some of our listeners are. So what we're going to do is, you know, we post these stories all week long on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, Matt and Chris do a great job of sharing all these stories throughout the week. So what we want you to do is we want you to follow us on social media, read the stories, and give us your opinions and your thoughts. And so starting next week with The Week in Weird, when Melody reads the stories, that will be the stories that were put out there on social media, and then instead of us commenting on it, she's going to read some of the best comments that listeners had about it. So that way there, you know... You don't have to listen to me make a dumb, you know, penis joke. You can make a dumb penis joke yourself, <laughs> and then Melody will read it on the air. And then you make Melody say penis on the radio, which will work out great for everybody, except for Melody. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> She's speechless. She I, you know what? I'm on board. I'm excited. All right. Well, you know, but that's usually where my mind goes for the joke, so I'm sure the listeners will be the same way. But uh, let's let's do so. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at SpookySC, and you'll be able to see those stories and comment on them. Share your thoughts. Share your questions. It doesn't always have to be something smartass, and we will incorporate that into the week and weird. Sound good to you, Melody? Sounds good to me. I hope it sounds good to everyone else too. <laughs> All right. Well, you have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. You too. Bye, guys. All right. That is Bye. Melody Knapp, our paranormal news correspondent. And you know, some sometimes with these stories too, like I, I'm starting to think that the the regular news media is starting to be a little bit more paranormally savvy. You know what I mean? They, you mean like that UFO video around the ISS that uh, you made the rounds? Stop rent? that talk right now. Well, I, my barber was talking about that. So the there's footage of these orbs flying by. Though I haven't seen it, I just know what he was telling me about it. It's these, uh, you know, these brightly colored Roughly lights. six, yeah, six or so. It's these. like one, and then a group of four, and then of another one formation. trailing behind. Yeah. So, and and what's I mean, that's the thing about the way things are now. Like, I was telling him in the '60s and the '70s, NASA scrubbed everything before the, it got out to the news. Now it's a matter of there's direct feeds and direct video all the time that people can watch. So when you're sitting at home and you're like, hey, let me go check out that International Space Station live feed. You know, next thing you know, there's stuff happening. We can move on from aliens. I'm okay with that. Well, we do have a call on the line, so I'm going to take this call, and uh, and we'll we'll see if um, if Matt can get Seth on the line uh, while we're talking to this person. If you don't mind, Matt, we, I tell you, man, we're going to get you an intern at some point. <laughs> so you can just point to the kid that's in the booth over there, and then they'll they'll get the guest on the phone. But until that point. We appreciate you doing that for us. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Okay. Tim, long-time listener, first-time caller. Well, Just thank you. I say I love the show. Love it. Thank you very much. Uh, this is uh, this is Gazelle. What's happening? Just sit at home on the couch. I'm petting my cat, listening to your show. The, you, you, I love it. You don't have a, <laughs> you don't have a gig tonight? I don't, man. I'm tired. Uh, I actually fell and slipped on black ice last night, so my whole left leg is out of commission. Oh no! So I can't really do much. Oh no! Yeah. Well. So I want to. I want to know uh, if we can go back and talk about the uh, the acid crotch again. Yes. Um, what, what exactly happened? Uh, I, I missed the first part of the story. Well, somebody broke into the lad school in Rhode Island, and for the purposes of ghost hunting. And when they broke in, they I guess they went through a window or something, and they knocked over a can of acid and, and spilled it on his crotch. 
Uh, so that's his fault, and he's breaking and entering. Right, but apparently the problem is because there's the, the liability factor. You know, if you have your car parked in your driveway and your car is locked and somebody comes and breaks into your car and hotwires your car and drives it down the street and runs somebody over, you can be held responsible for that. <laughs> it just went from zero to 100 real quick there. There's... there's Flying, flying gummy bears, gummy bears all over the studio. <laughs> uh, so the so that's the problem is that you know there's always that that uh, liability factor. So that's why a lot of these places now lock themselves down tight. And you know, like Lakeville Hospital has the. Uh, all right, so I'm looking at the story here. The state was found not liable. So I I was a little bit off in my uh, information. I want I want to say that he was 17 years old. Ah, young and dumb. All right, he suffered extensive burns on his legs after they grabbed several unmarked bottles of hazardous materials that turned out to be sulfuric acid. So they broke in. They were messing around with this stuff. He spilled it all over himself and tried to sue them. But well, I mean, thankfully, they can't they have kids anymore. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, it doesn't say in the story exactly where it got him, but I heard it was all over his garage. That is horrendous. So, so uh, I hear you eating octopus from the studio. Yes, we were eating some octopus. Yes. Was it live or was it calamari? No, it was it was octopus salad from the uh, from the place down the street. We wanted to do that thing where you pour soy on it and it starts to move. And did it? It did not. It was. I think it was cooked. It so, was so gross. So that's a video that we're going to make this week. Okay, we're going to go out. We're going to find a raw squid. Come on. And we're going to pour well, soy sauce on it and watch it come to life. We'll go down to Kyla's catch. Absolutely. We will right, do this. Well, hey, listen, man. I love you. Love the show, Stephanie. You're beautiful as always. Thank and you. You guys have a great weekend. You as well. We love you too. Thank you for calling. <laughs> All right, that's the one and the only gazelle. We got to get him on an investigation sometime. We've been talking about it forever. The time that he came in here, what was that? Two years ago? Yeah. Three years ago now, we, and said we, that he wanted to. We got to get him on an investigation. I he was would... supposed to tell you that you're supposed to make him a grilled cheese. I just didn't have a chance to. Supposed to make him a grilled cheese. That's what he said. Tell Tim to make me a grilled cheese. Okay. I think he wants to steak him instead. <laughs> he had a post this week on, on Fun 107's website. What was your favorite school lunch? So before we get into the conversation with yes. Seth Breedlove, I'm just going to go around the, the table we have one to time. Talk about food. What was your favorite school lunch? Um, I think chicken patty. Okay. Deca School, the hamburger soup. Okay. Matt, did you, did, did you bring lunch or did you buy lunch? Uh, I was a brown bagger. That's what I thought. But, um, yeah. but, um, Except on a Turkey Chunky Day. Turkey ch- See, I was disappointed that, that really? Gazelle did not put the Turkey Chunkies on his list. You know what? It might have been pizza sticks, too. We we used to love the Turkey Chunkies of where you would just... I don't even know what that is. It's like chopped up piece of the turkey <laughs> on top of mashed potatoes with gravy. That and, sounds uh, disgusting. Yeah, and, and, awesome. But when I was a senior, you know, it was, it was two chicken patties, double fries. He could, you can't get extra fries with a chicken patty. But uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have a lot of shout outs tonight too. I'm just throwing it out there now because we're that's, live. So. That's the idea. We wanna we wanna do that. We wanna let people know. We have a listening. lot of people watching too. All right. Well, let's get in. Do you want to do a couple shout outs right we now? We can do shout outs now too. Do we some have right now. Uh, Jordan Adkins. He's listening from. Oh, where we are. Sorry, I'm I'm losing it. There's a bunch of people that just came on. Listening from Tennessee, we have Lauren Pexoto and probably Chris too, and they're listening from Westport, Mass. Nice. Well. You can watch along. Stephanie has it going on Facebook Live. You know, Matt actually has a connection that you can use, but I don't know if it'll work with iPhone. I have no idea. Hear the guest. So we're, we're, you know, you're doing the best that you can to make it work that I way. Am. But you can always download the Spooky South Coast app for your iPhone, yes. for your Android phone. It's free, and you can watch and listen and chat all right there on the app. So it's a great way to 
get involved with everything that we're doing and everything that we're talking about tonight uh, because we are going to get now into the discussion with our guest tonight, Seth Breedlove. He has the the Small Town Monsters series of films, and we're very excited to have him back on the show. Seth, good evening. Thank you for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's always great having you on because you know when whenever we talk about this stuff, we'll, we're we're going to get like fourteen, fifteen emails by the end of the night of people that want to share their own story. So for some reason, I think it's just you have a trustworthy voice. People want to share stories with you. Either that, or uh, usually, see, you said we get fourteen or fifteen emails, and I was expecting it to be like people begging us to never have you on the show <laughs> no, again. Not at all. Well, the the last time we had you on was to talk about the first film in the series, Minerva Monsters, and that has just become. Uh, a huge thing. It's become like a, a, a pop culture thing now that goes beyond just people in the paranormal. This is something that people are buzzing about. Yeah, uh, t- it definitely took on a life of its own. I think here in Northeast Ohio especially, it almost became like a viral kind of thing over the summer. Like, you can get a read on, you know, how the awareness for your for your project is simply based on, like, how many people on Twitter are talking about it that you don't know. So if you... <laughs> If you're searching for, like, Minerva Monster on Twitter and a bunch of people were talking about it, uh, you know, that kind of indicated that, you know, the movie was, was definitely kind of blowing up on us. But um, it, it definitely it definitely took on a life of its own, and it led to the creation of The Beast of Whitehall, which became our, our biggest movie, and then Boggy Creek Monster that we created last year so we're kind of rolling one right into the next right now and when you're when you have all these uh projects that are coming together and starting to to put an emphasis and a focus on these these monsters it's good because you're giving a spotlight not just to the creatures and to their stories but to the people and to the towns that have had to endure them so i know that you know with the minerva monster that community embraced you but you're seeing the same thing with these other communities as well where you know it becomes something that becomes a point of pride for them yeah, I think to a greater or lesser extent, Minerva is always going to be a unique one for us, I think, because it was like, um, I gotta say this without sounding like an egomaniac, cause, but, but the case had been forgotten. Minerva, the Minerva monster case had been forgotten. So we were the ones to kind of reintroduce it to the town. I mean, a lot of young kids that we talked to in Minerva had never even heard of the Minerva monster case. So, we we were kind of responsible for bringing that back, you know, in a, in a big way to the town, and we created the the Minerva Monster Day um, event the first year when the movie came out, which acted as a uh, basically a premiere for the movie, and then we we did a Minerva Monster Day uh, 2016 last last fall that ended up having over a thousand people come out, and we showed. Um, different movies, like, you know, cryptid kind of movies similar to what we do. Um, and it went just as well. So, I mean, it's definitely, it was, it was a unique case. I don't think we'll ever experience that exact same thing again. We've definitely, you know, we, we did a screening in Whitehall for the Beast of Whitehall movie, and that went well beyond what we expected it to do. Um, we packed out uh, the the armory and showed the movie to over 500 people. Wow. Um, and then with Boggy Creek Monster, we showed it to around 400. But, you know, I mean, those two towns with with Whitehall and, and Boggy Creek, those towns were well aware of their, you know, local monster legend. So that they weren't, it wasn't something where we felt like we had a, 
necessarily a, a, a voice in introducing people to those stories. But, I mean, that doesn't take away from the awesomeness of what we we got to be a part of there. But there's something very unique about what happened with Minerva that I don't think, you know, I mean, we're working on a Mothman movie now. I mean, Point Pleasant can't escape the Mothman. Right. So we're definitely we're definitely not introducing Point Pleasant to their local monster. And, and that's, you know, obviously we'll talk in great deal tonight about Mothman and about Point Pleasant, but what has been the reaction been from that community? Because I know that they embrace it as a you know a subculture within the town. They use it you know they have the festival. They they use it as a way to draw in some tourism and draw in some attention. But at the same time, when you're showing up with cameras saying we're going to be making a film about Mothman, they must be rolling their eyes to some degree and saying, "Oh, good, another one." Yeah, have have you been there? I have never been. No. Okay. Yeah, it's it's pretty unique it's it's similar to falc with the boggy creek monster but it's they have this museum entirely devoted to the mothman put put up, put together by jeff walmsley and obviously the festival the mothman festival has taken on a life of its own where you're talking last year there were twelve thousand people in in downtown point Pleasant. you couldn't walk across the street there were so many people um and and so yeah it's it's definitely a major part of their tourism i would say you got to think of how to word this without. I would say that it it might not be with some people in the town. It might not be as accepted as you would think mm-hmm. um, because of the positives of of the tourism. You would expect it to be something that kind of the town as a whole is embraced. We've run into at least a couple incidents where people were like, "Eh, you know, we don't want you shooting here. We don't want you talking about Mothman." Some of that is a lot of that is totally understandable because. You know, when you're talking about the Silver Bridge collapse, you're talking about the lives of 46 people that were lost, and, right. and a lot of those people were connected to people in the town. So some of those people see the the Mothman overshadowing the importance of lost loved ones, I think, in a way. And, and it kind of, you know, I totally understand that. We try to be really respectful when we're shooting down there, you know, of like not not running into people's faces with cameras and screaming, you know, but what do you think about the Mothman attacking the bridge or, you know, some, some crazy thing like that. We're, but but I, I think as a, you know, when you're talking about certain people in the town that are in charge of the tourism and that kind of thing, I, th- I definitely think that the local government understands how, how important it is to their community and how beneficial it's been, especially when you're talking about 12,000 people coming into the downtown area and spending money and tax money and i mean they're they're a case study in how crypto tourism can help a small community oh absolutely and and one of the things that i've always found interesting about that area at least in in the research that i've done and you know we've we've had jeff walmsley on the show before and we've we've covered this in, in from some different angles from time to time but the fact that there are people who are you know, for staunch non-believers in everything that happened, but yet are still willing to have their hands in the pie when it comes to being able to make something off of it. And I and I find that fascinating because, like, they don't hold back about that at all. You know, up here, you know, you know, if you go to Salem, there's probably people who run run witch shops and things like that that are like, listen, I don't believe any of that. It's just a kitschy little thing that I know I can make some money off of. But you know, in Point Pleasant, you have no problem with you know shopkeepers telling you, I don't believe in any of this stuff, but I'll carry Mothman merchandise if it means somebody's going to come in. Yeah, yeah, I I think, well, it it depends on how you approach it, too, because I'm a little on the skeptical side. And I think from what I've seen as far as some of the business owners who are on the positive end of things down there, it's 
it's more like they're embracing that part of their history. You know, like I always say, like these stories are important whether you believe the, the creatures actually exist or not, because it's a part of that town's culture. You know, like it informed mm-hmm. everything in that community and you cannot go to Point Pleasant and not see the the that those stories um imprint on Point Pleasant and the and its people especially. I mean you know, everyone's got a story down there about someone they know seeing either a UFO or a Men in Black or a Mothman. Um, and, and so I think a lot of people, if they know what's good for their town, are, are willing to embrace it. You know, especially people like Denny, who runs the, the tourism board down there. That guy's awesome. And Jeff has been, I mean, honestly, without Jeff, there wouldn't even be a movie. Um, and, and especially, there might have been a movie, but it's not, it would not have been the same movie that it's going to be after the influence and the um, the uh, information and some of the artifacts that Jeff has passed on to me to use in the movie, including some some amazing footage um, that, that has never been been seen before of the of the bridge immediately after the bridge collapse. Because our wow. movie does take a very you know, like it's a ground level look of everything that happened in that 13 month span of time between 66 and 67. So, uh, anyway, I think the people like those guys that have have an active hand in in helping steer the town um, in the direction of embracing this are are definitely aware of you know the positives of it. And and honestly, Jeff Wamsley and Denny and Carolyn when she was alive, I mean, they they weren't doing this out of some like weird. Uh, you know, like money grab situation. It's not a money grab. It's it's really trying to help a, a small town that is hurting, like every small town. So, I mean, before I guess we really get too in depth into a lot of the different stories around it, let's kind of just give everybody an overview of Mothman and what happened in Point Pleasant. Yeah, in in 1966, in November of 1966, um, two couples were were driving around a, an abandoned munitions former munitions factory known as the TNT area now, but um, it was a TNT factory area, and they were driving around to to basically catch kids that were parking, you know, to neck or whatever kids did back in 1966. They just held um, hands, Joe, uh, Seth. They just held hands. Yeah, it was a much more innocent time, right? Parking and <laughs> sure. holding hands, and listening to the radio, air kiss, whatever, whatever they did. <laughs> uh, so they were driving. They were driving around back then. I've seen American Graffiti. I, I'm pretty sure I know what was going on down there. Um, they were driving around trying to catch kids doing this, and uh, they saw a a you know a man sized creature standing on the side of the road, and they freaked out and yep. Yeah, this creature proceeded to chase their car into town. Um, they go into town. They report this sighting of this creature to the local police, and the story hits the you know the newswire as it does. And and the next day they hold a press conference, and these four kids get up and talk about the the creature they saw. Never saying the name Mothman. That is something worth noting because they no one that actually saw the creature in the first few days ever called it mothman that was something that was dubbed by the by the local media um so that from there it it basically started to snowball and you had more and more people starting to report sightings of a creature now 
you know, what what we're going to kind of investigate in our movie is, is not just that initial sighting, but some of the sightings that took place before it, and then all the sightings that kind of took place over the course of 1966 and 67. But um, in addition to those early sightings, there were also sightings of UFOs up and down Route 35, um, up and down the Ohio River. Um, there's a really famous case, the Woody Wood, Woodrow Derenberger case, um, where he met a, a, a humanoid alien in the middle of a, a road outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, and that case has been kind of all, all frequently connected to the Mothman case, even though Parkersburg isn't extremely close to, you know, Point Pleasant. Um, and that's the injured cold creature who mm-hmm. played a, a large role in the Mothman Prophecies movie. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, I mentioned Mothman Prophecies. That's a huge part of the story is the fact that John Keel wrote this book in, in the early 70s or late 60s, can't remember, um, about all the Mothman sightings and, and mostly documented the Mothman sightings, the UFOs and the Men in Black and, and these strange premonitions he was being handed off by a, a creature um, who would call him and, and basically, you know, pass on these prophecies to him. Well, and um, what, I mean, that's kind of what people have zeroed in on is the Keel book and, and the mm-hmm. movie, and they've kind of zeroed in on that as being the whole story, but it's it's not. I mean, even Keel said not everything in the story was 100% on the level. Right, right. I mean, so it's it's a really unique case for us because there's so many different players. You've got Gray Barker and you've got Keel and you've got Mary Heyer. And, I mean, yeah, Keel himself said there were hundreds of sightings of the Mothman. He picked the cream of the crop. Mm-hmm. And you're not – it's, it's also kind of a cool case for us because it's not just one creature, you know, at the heart of this. There's there's the Mothman sightings, but there's also these UFO sightings and – and the men in black stuff that was going on. And some of the, you know, some of the, the psychological things that seem to be at play here, I mean, the effects of, of sightings really um, interest me. You know, like, we've spoken to, or not spoken directly to, but we, we did talk to one man who said it was the devil. We've heard from Marcella Bennett that it was Satan. And we know that um, Linda Scarberry before she died, said she'd been haunted by it her whole life and wished, you know, she'd never seen the thing to begin with. But she talked about poltergeist activity in her house and all kinds of weird stuff after the the sightings of the Mothman. So it's not it's not just one phenomenon at play here. There's a whole bunch of different stuff going on, and um, that's that's something we're gonna we're gonna play with in the, in the film. And, and that's what I love the most about the Mothman story and, and something that I know that drives Lauren Coleman crazy because it brings in all these other aspects and it can't just be, you know, this physical flesh and blood creature that people saw. It's all this other weird stuff that's associated with it, which to me just proves that, you know, these type of phenomena are always kind of connected in some way. But uh, you had mentioned something interesting that there was sightings previous to the ones that we know about. So I, I know like Linda Scarberry and the group that she was with in the car, they saw it a couple of days after some, some grave diggers had reported something similar. Was there something even before that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have we have sightings going all the way back to the to uh, the World War One era. Oh, wow. Um, and and i got to give credit. That's credit on that to Mark Hall and Lauren Coleman, actually, because um, they, they've written – about and a book that was actually around um, 
It was one of those university books, and now that I'm talking about it, I cannot remember the name of the book, but it, it basically talked about folklore in the Ohio Valley. And um, one of the stories was about giant birds seen around Point Pleasant preceding a disaster or a tragedy. Um, and this was back around the World War One era. So that's, you know, I mean, if you want to draw in that, um, obviously that's that's a really unique. I, I don't know that you would make that correlation if it wasn't for the fact that it's point. It's literally talking about Point Pleasant and people seeing birds before tragedy. Well, and also, yeah, the fact that it's a harbinger because that's you know the the big thing with Mothman is that. That's what it came to be known as. So it's not like just walking into the woods and encountering, you know, some of these other cryptid creatures that you might see out there. This is this when you have a sighting of Mothman, it means something. It means something bad's coming. Sure, I mean, it just depends too, though, because like it's a. This is why I love the case so much. I've I spoke with with um with one. There were there were two firemen that claimed to have seen. A, they're they're frequently referred to as Mothman witnesses, but they, they didn't see Mothman. I, I spoke to one of them, and I cannot remember which one now. It was either Paul Yoder or Benjamin Enochs, but they were volunteer firemen, and they were in the TNT factory area either the day or two days after the Scarberry sighting, and they claimed that they encountered a massive creature. And when I spoke to him on the phone, he, he flat out told me it was just a big owl. You know, like he told me that, that one of the things that happened with that case is that the local media just started blowing up any story they, they could. So they heard about the Enoch's Yoder story through someone else, and then they interviewed them about it. And before they, those guys knew it, you know, they were being written about as having had a sighting of the Mothman. You know, and when you talk about there were, there were also these pilots um, at the Gallup Police Airport across the river from, from Point Pleasant who claimed to have seen a, a massive bird that they originally thought was an airplane. Um, they thought it was an airplane coming in for a landing. They said it, it had a four-foot, at least a four-foot-long neck and this massive beak, and the way they talked about it, it sounded more like a pterodactyl. So um, you're, that's one of the really fascinating things to me is how many different descriptions of the Mothman there are, because then you obviously also have the, you know, the man-like bird that you typically connect with the Scarberry Mallet sighting, although that, you know, when you're talking about a man-like bird, they also said it had no head and its eyes were kind of in the center of its chest, which doesn't sound like any men I know, but um, right. I just, I, it's it's really unique. It's a really unique case in that way. And and just uh, for for those who aren't familiar with the story, where we've been talking about the Silver Bridge as well, and and the connection is that it was it was what thirteen month thirteen months of the day, yeah, after the Scarberry Mallet sighting that this bridge collapsed, and and that led to people thinking that Mothman was the harbinger of of that happening, that it was he was appearing to to be a warning of that. But I mean, you have thirteen months between this this initial kind of sighting and, and that actually happening what was going on in the in the in between uh that's when when we're talking to the people we're interviewing for our movie the thing we're hearing pretty often uh from from witnesses and from you know we we spoke with a reporter last week named dave payton who was working in the newsroom at the herald dispatch in charleston at the time and he took a lot of phone calls about UFO sightings. And what what they're all kind of saying is it seemed like there was a a pattern of escalation. Like, everything was kind of spiraling towards something. It's just that no one knew what it was going to be. So you you did have 
whatever the events were, it just felt like things were getting weirder and weirder. So you, you've got the Mothman sightings, which are pretty weird to begin with. And before those, you'd had UFO sightings, but the two start to coincide, and you've got people seeing, you know, more and more UFO sightings starting to come in while the while the Mothman sightings are coming in. And then you start having things like the Men in Black sightings. And, and the Men in Black sightings are bizarre. And when I say sightings, uh, interactions would right. probably be, a, you know, a better term for it. But and obviously, guys like Nick Redfern have written extensively about Men in Black, and I'm I'm a total novice when it comes to talking about the Men in Black stuff. All I know is what I'm hearing. You know, when I go to Point Pleasant and I speak to witnesses or reporters or or whoever. But I do know Connie Carpenter, who was connected to the Mothman case because she had seen the Mothman in broad daylight just a few days after the initial um, Scarberry Mallet sightings. She she was um, outside of her home, I believe, in a, a, mo- a Mothman, a men in black, an MIB pulled up and actually attempted to kind of grab her and pull her into his car. Um, so, so the sightings or interactions with the men in black were kind of running the gamut from from uh, terrifying to just flat-out bizarre. Um, so all this is going on over the course of 66 and 67. And again, John Keel said of the few cases he's documented that there were hundreds. He just ran the cream of the crop. Now, having said that, I have no way to back that up because mm-hmm. of the fact that um, it does not seem that there are Mossman files that Keel would have kept or did keep, which is not necessarily in keeping with his, you know, I mean, he was pretty anal about cataloging all of his, you know, his stuff, not necessarily, not necessarily cataloging it, but keeping it. And I spoke with his archivist through email, and he said there there are very few um, Mothman files or cases on file in Keel's collection. So I don't know why that is. You know, because because Keel does say that he interviewed quite a few people about Mothman, and um, even even leaving aside the ones that he supposedly didn't, you know, write about, um, he should have files somewhere of of the Carpenter sightings and the Scarberry Mallet and all that stuff. And, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information in Keel's collection on that. So I'm curious to know where where that stuff would have gone. Well, of course, we can speculate on that. Uh, we are just about out of time for this hour. When we come back in the next hour, I want to get more into some of these Men in Black sightings because they are different than a lot of some of these other stories that we hear about these visitations that people get. And I do want to talk a little bit more about Indrid Cole just because I want to give Stephanie nightmares tonight. You're so kind to me, I, I, really. Hey, I always have your best interest at heart. You so do. we'll get into all that coming up, and, and we'll get into more of what Mothman could be. And I, I want to be fair and present the other side, so we'll talk a little bit about some of the Joe Nichols of the world and, and the kind of stuff that they've said about this. I, I know. Even I roll, my, I roll my eyes when I say Joe Nickel, like Joe Nickel rolls his eyes when somebody says my name, I'm sure. So <laughs> it's the same reaction either way. So we'll, uh, we'll get into all that coming up in the next hour with our guest, Seth Breedlove. And you can check out the website during the break if you'd like to smalltownmonsters.com you can find out about this project as well as all their other films you can get them right there on there as well and absolutely 100% recommend following them on Twitter 
as well. You can follow us at SpookySC, and you'll see we've been tweeting out links to both Seth and the Small Town Monsters site and, and Twitter account and all that, too. So we'll get into all that discussion coming up, and we'll also take your calls at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. You can also join us in the chat room on the Spooky South Coast app and on our YouTube page and on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. So many ways to get involved with the show, but we'd love to hear your voice. We'd love to hear your calls and your questions as well. So the website has the phone numbers right there on it, and we'll talk to you in just a few. Number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Wise right here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Stephanie Burke. And uh, we are talking the paranormal. We're talking Mothman tonight with our guest Seth Breedlove. And you can check out his website, smalltownmonsters.com. We're talking about the Mothman case tonight, which is the project they're currently working on. But they have some other great, fantastic documentaries there in the Small Town Monsters series that you can check out on their website and purchase and share with all your friends and discuss and really just delve into this because there's a whole world of these creatures out there. It's it's it goes beyond just what you've seen on, you know, TV. It goes beyond just what we've talked about here on the show. And what's great about Seth and his work is they focus on the community and the impact that it has on the community. So it's not just about these legends, but it's about the way that people deal with the legends as well, which is a touch that's missing from a lot of these other media about these things. And also they just find cool stories that nobody else does too. Uh, we will be getting right back into the conversation in just a moment. I just want to let everybody know I've been getting a lot of requests from people asking about when we're going to have some different events. We've been talking about the conventions that are coming up, Salem Con, the Provincetown Paracon. Uh, We've been talking about those things. Uh, but people have been saying, well, when are we going to go legend tripping again? And we will be. I haven't, uh, I haven't put your microphone on. There you go. You didn't. No. But you're on right. now. Good. And, uh, but we, we have been talking about a few things. Uh, the, the thing is, is that Jeff's climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. So he that's is. taking that's so all of exciting. his focus right now. He's gonna. He's gonna be. It's gonna, it's gonna take like a month. Really, that long? Yeah, like he's like it's gonna between going there, climbing, recovering, all that stuff. Wow. He's gonna be out of things for a while, so uh, we're we're basically starting to lay the groundwork for some plans for when he's ready to get back into the swing of things after that. I'm ready for it. And we will have some announcements forthcoming. We have some ideas, uh, some places that we want to go first time, and some places that we want to go back to. And, and I can tell you, places are reaching out to us including one that we had a very successful event at last year that people we were asking if we're going to get back into. So it looks like we will be. looks like uh, we're going to be setting that back up again for this year. So we'll have all that information forthcoming for you. In two weeks, we won't be here because we have an event at Lizzie Borden's, so there'll be no show that night. I think I'm going to, I'm going to try and do a pre-recorded show and... Hopefully it works out better than last time, Matt Costa. Thank you for trying to fix the disaster that was the last show that I recorded. <laughs> but uh, we'll try and get it right this time. And when we do, hopefully we'll have a recorded show for you that night. Uh, but uh, we'll be we'll be checking out Lizzie's. And I, I don't know if you – did I tell you, Stephanie, what I got? Did you? We were talking about this last week. You weren't here. But we, no, I we was were in talking Sunny, about Florida. budget ghost hunting. 
and okay. you know things that you can buy. I actually went out and bought you know those lazy lights that were out this Christmas for people to put yes, on their house. Yes, you found them. I bought one. That's awesome. And uh, and I got it on clearance at Kmart, which is closing down. Perfect. And it's basically it's literally just a plug-in laser grid. So that's awesome. It'll work out great in places like Lizzie Borden's where there's electricity. So does it won't actually work out so good in other places? Outlet plug, right? Yes. So I'm curious to see if that dies on us, just like the laser grid. Exactly. Do. Yeah, I want to see if there's any kind of manipulation for it, and hmm. you know, and, and at the very least, we know that we can let it go without having to tie a hair elastic around it, put it in a chip <laughs> clip. The you know, many that things stuff. that we do, but I think that would be awesome for the basement in Lizzie Borden's, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Especially uh, the one corner where we I always get a new toy. Fish. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, man, we got to go. We got to go buy some more of them before the before. How much gone. were they? I, pay, I paid 14 bucks for it. Not bad. Buy like four of them. Well, I don't have all. I don't have that kind we'll of. We'll send money. you. Go over there. Oh, they're they're closed already. Well, for tonight, but they're they're still open. So if you go back during the day, or you know, we'll 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 get some. It, it, uh, we've got what four floors to cover at Lizzie Board. Yes, that's why I yes. said by four. So yeah, we'll we'll definitely do something, uh, and at the very least, you know, we can just save them and use them at Christmas time, and not have to worry about putting any lights out. Why not? Because we're lazy, so we like lazy <laughs> lights. All right, well, let's get back into the discussion with our guest tonight, Seth Breedlove. And we were talking, Seth, in the last hour a little bit about these Men in Black reports that came, you know, people who were seeing this Mothman creature were getting visitations from these Men in Black. And what are some of the the commonalities of the reports that people were reporting when these individuals were coming to their doorstep? Are you with us, Seth? Did I knock you off? Oh, no. Sorry, yeah, I'm oh, here. Oh, there he is. Okay. All right. I thought I did something. It wouldn't be the no, first time, so. It was entirely me, um, which is usual. Uh, at least I couldn't blame this on, like, a Mothman curse, unlike uh, all, all of our other technical problems that we've been blaming on that lately. You say that now, but I'm looking out the window at a pair of glowing red eyes. There you go. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's just the, the sign at the restaurant across the street. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the, the commonality seems to be just how unusual and unearthly um, the, the men in black did seem to be. They just, just the way they behaved and spoke and, and acted in general just it didn't seem like they were from Earth. It was like they were, they were, you know, they had no idea how to act. They were attempting to behave like they saw other people behave, um, almost like an imitation of, of humanity. A lot of times people um, attribute... Uh, Injured cold actually uh, to being kind of a men in black type because um, his his behavior seems to to line up a little bit with them. But you know Mary Heyer, who was who wrote for the Athens Messenger and worked with Keel extensively, had a visit from a uh, at least one man in black um, at her office one night, and um, you know he came in and was asking all these weird questions. That does seem to be something you commonly hear is they asked a lot of bizarre questions of of witnesses of not just Mothman but Men in Black as, or of uh, UFOs as well. Um, they would ask a lot of bizarre kind of kind of questions and and uh, one of my favorite stories is about this this one particular Men in Black who showed up at, the, at these people's house and I believe they had had a sighting of a UFO and he showed up at their house and um, he he. Over the course of of this discussion, he somehow convinced them, you know, that he was working for a company that uh, took a census, basically from 
uh, like a will, like he was trying to establish it. These people were supposed to receive a, the, um, you know, be the recipients of a will. And they, they let this guy into their house and he proceeded to sit at their dinner table and, and interview them. And over the, the course of the interview, it almost seemed like he started to, um, the way, the way I think Keel put it or in, in the book, it was almost like he was malfunctioning or something. And, um, they, they kept offering him water. He kept, you know, saying he was, he was warm and, you know, very hot. He seemed to be like he was almost like he was melting or something. So eventually they gave him water. And, um, I, I guess the, the weird thing about it to me was there was also this description where they said at one point he reached down and lifted his, I think it was his pant leg. And when he did it, they saw wires running down his, his leg. Mm. Almost like he was a uh, like a cyborg or something. It's just such a bizarre story, and that's that's not even you know. I mean, for the most part, that's pretty typical of how Men in Black sightings are. They're just bizarre. I've um, been I, I talking with Nick Redfern about it in the past, though. I mean, sometimes these beings are, you know, these Men in Black figures could very well be humans and 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 seem like they're humans and could be from some clandestine government organization or you know non-governmental organization depending on who you think they're coming from but that these particular men in black that people were encountering in Point Pleasant didn't seem like they were from the government or at least not from uh, any earthly government right and the government thing would make sense in a way because you know there's there's a national guard armory right down the street from the TNT factory area at the back in the 60s. I don't know if it's still there. There was actually a naval headquarters downtown. You know, you're you're at at a amazingly um well-situated sh- major kind of shipping lane on the Ohio River and the Kanawha River. You can, when you go down there, you can't walk out to the to the edge of the river without seeing a barge or something go by, you know, transporting uh goods. And so so it would make sense that this place is is kind of in an ideal spot for something like that to be going on, but yeah, the the, the men in black behavior doesn't seem to be um, human, and it doesn't, you know, it, it kind of flies in the face of what you would attribute to to some sort of government spy agency. Um, you know, people reported seeing these like vans. It wasn't just typically you think of those like a black car or an unmarked kind of car, but um, people talked about seeing unmarked vans up in the mountains or the hills. Um, you know, parked in bizarre places. They they saw men up on telephone poles, uh, men in black up on telephone poles doing God knows what with, with telephone lines. Um, and and then you got to wonder because because one of the the things that Keel wrote about was the people would hear voices coming from what seemed to be above them, you know, in the air, but there's nothing there. Um, but they would hear voices kind of conversing in the kind of in the sky above them, and you got to wonder like what what exactly was going on in the area at that time. Faye DeWitt, who who had a sighting of the Mothman, and we talked to her. Her and her brother actually were similar to the Scarberries. They were kind of chased by the Mothman. He stayed perpendicular to their car in the TNT factory area. They they drove into the into the uh, power plant and parked and the the mothman actually uh perched up on the factory her brother got out of the car and like a crazy person according to her uh threw lumps of coal at it until it kind of came at them 
and actually landed on the hood of their car and stared in at them. Well, the next day or two days after, they went to go back to the uh, the TNT area just to you know just to see what was going on if if anything else was happening. And the the factory, the abandoned factory, was actually roped off, and they said there were men in black uh, at the at the factory not letting cars in. So, and that was a you know they they that was a, a sighting witness of the Mothman repeating that story. And with with these men in black that the the Mothman witnesses reported visiting them. Uh, you know, I remember, I think it was in Keel's book where he's talking about how they, they didn't, they looked like they were trying to be uh, a certain ethnicity or a certain nationality, but they just weren't getting it right. And that, you know, they would be like adjusting their hair, like their entire head of hair was fake. Like it, it, it was just something where it made people very uncomfortable by how, um, you know, it's 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 almost like a, a child's drawing of a person that it just didn't exactly fit correctly. Yeah, I mean, th- there was also the talk of like how they would be in what looked like military attire, but like some small things would be slightly out of place. They'd have the wrong insignia, or you know, they'd be wearing the wrong shoes or whatever. Um, th- th- that's one of the weird aspects of this. I mean, there's no. What you, you would typically just say, well, they're probably government officials or something like that. I, I and in in a way, again, it does make sense for it to be government officials. To me, especially, like I found an article um, online not too long ago. I need to find this article again because I've referenced it a couple times and I haven't given an exact reference as to where I got this from. But there's an article online I found. Um, and I want to say it was on some Air Force website, you know, like an Air Force kind of magazine, something like that, um, aviation something. But a former Air Force officer said that the entire Mothman incident was based around a a prototype paratrooper suit. And that might have been what Scarberries and Mallets actually saw was, you know, someone testing that suit out over near the TNT area. Um, you know, but possibly from that that uh, National Guard armory, there was some involvement there, and that's why they were over in the TNT area. But I, f- I found it interesting that that article is even floating around because it that almost brings to mind something like Roswell, where the where the government for for decades is trying to cover it up with multiple reasons, you know, for what could have been going on. But I found that not too long ago and thought it was really interesting because I'd never heard that before. But um, that if if you Google, like, Mothman paratrooper suit, prototype suit, you should be able to find that article. Well, I mean, and that's, you know, I can kind of understand why there would be... Um a, dis- a disinformation campaign surrounding that, but also with all of the hysteria that was building up amongst these witnesses, you would think that you'd want to address it at some point and say, hey, listen, you know, it, it was something we were working on and we just, we can't give you any more information than that. Stop talking about it. Stop sharing the story with everybody because you're doing us a disservice about this project that we're trying to work on. So you would think they would want to kind of uh, put the kibosh on that a little bit instead of letting all this speculation and rumor go on for so many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there's there were reports. There's there's at least one report I'm aware of where someone said they saw two um, men actually on the bridge, and I, it wasn't a direct Men in Black sighting. I don't believe. I think they said they saw two men in plain clothes climbing around the bridge uh, prior to the collapse. So 
you know, the the MIB stuff that was going on in Point Pleasant was definitely bizarre. And more and more people have kind of come out over the over the years since with you know th- th- with t- stories about running into people that, in retrospect, they think might have been involved in that part of the the phenomena. Now. In talking about the Men in Black, you know, we, we've mentioned and referenced Indrid Cole. That do you go in detail to, to that story in the movie? We're we're not. Um, Cold will definitely get a mention, and it's you know it's a piece of that story for sure for a lot of people. But it it was covered extensively in Eyes of the Mothman, which is a really good documentary and something I'm a fan of. And it's been covered in in almost every you know, story about Mothman, whereas what, what I'm trying to do is do something that's a little more focused on Point Pleasant right. and and everything that happened in Point Pleasant during that time. And having taken place in Parkersburg, it's a little outside of that area. However, I mean, you can't, you honestly cannot tell a Mothman story without having at least some some aspect of that, you know, the injured cold stuff mentioned in the film. So for sure it's going to be you know, at least touched upon. Especially where, you know, he's a figure who's reported well prior to the Mothman sightings. You know, a, a month before the Mothman sightings, he's he's in New Jersey. And, yeah. you know, he's he's seen, and, and unlike these men in black who are, are weird but are trying to not be weird, uh, it seems like Cold had no problem just being weird. In fact, he eventually told people that he was from another planet. Right. Yeah, uh, the, that first sighting is something that i just actually became aware of the other day and i need to i need to do some reading into that just from my own curiosity because i don't know much about it yet other than the fact that he was seen in jersey in like 1966 but in in like october i think Mm -hmm. it was was october 16th so it was we're talking like a month before right you know the scarberry mallet site so i mean it's 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 right it's kind of in line with all these things happening it's just not geographically in the same area Right, and the and the initial cold run-in with Derenberger is downright creepy. It's probably one of the creepiest stories connected with with the Mossman, just because of the fact that he's got this, you know, this innocent guy driving down Route seventy seven, which, you know, I've been driving down my whole life because I grew up in Ohio and I grew up in a in a town that literally sits off of seventy seven, and uh, and it, he was he was driving down this road and this strange. Um, chimney chim how do they explain it you kerosene like a kerosene lamp chimney um spaceship descends in front of his car on the expressway and lands in front of him and this this man who he refers to as the grinning man if i'm not mistaken the Mm -hmm. grinning man gets out and approaches his car and he, he speaks to him and he his but the grinning man's mouth isn't moving so he's telepathically talking to him the weirdest thing about those that story, the Derenberger stuff, is that we've got this documented interview with Derenberger, um, the Derenberger tapes, I think it's called, which are actually on display at the Mothman Museum. But you can hear them online if you if you go on the National Archives, uh, archive.org and just look up Derenberger. You can actually find the initial interviews that he did with the Charleston, I think it was Charleston, a Charleston radio station or TV station. And, I mean, the guy sounds completely normal, um, totally sane. And I know eventually he did kind of... It seemed like eventually Derenberger either started to go... It's hard to say. He either became a full-on contactee, you know, and, and he wrote books on it and eventually ran off, if I'm not mistaken, with another lady who was a contactee. 
Um, and they became married and all that stuff. But I mean, his, his life kind of went to crap after the initial, um, sightings happened. And, and eventually he disappeared for like 40 days and claimed that he went to, uh, Lan, Lanulo with, with Derenberger and all that stuff. So, I mean, Derenberger became a, like a poster child in a way for, for the contactee movement. But, and, and then how does that story and, and his sighting, coincide with mothman except for the fact that it's just kind of in the same area at the same yep. time yeah that's that's why i kind of don't need to include it in my opinion in a, in a major way i feel like it's it, to me it doesn't it doesn't really tie in too too closely with that with that initial story i mean there have um, been some stories though of people who also had interactions with injured cold who said you know that they equated him as being, you know, him and Mothman were kind of of the same ilk, you know, like that Cold knew about the Mothman sightings. So, well, and, yeah, and his behavior seems so similar to, to what people are describing as the Men in Black stuff. So, I mean, it's all it's all connected because it's all taking place in the Ohio Valley in that span of time. I mean, because, you know, we're our next movie is going to be about the Chestnut Ridge, and um, we're going to delve much more into this type of thing, like a larger case that's kind of spread out over one area because one of the reasons is because my uh, my interest in the mothman case is it could be that there's a huge epic like four-hour miniseries to be done about the mothman case because you could cover everything that went on not just in point pleasant but you know the hawking area there were sightings in in the hawking area of ohio which is a couple hours from point pleasant um, of a Mothman. So, and during 66 and 67, whatever was going on in that period of time in West Virginia and the Ohio Valley in general, seems like, it, even though it seemed to be centered around Point Pleasant, it definitely had moved outside of that area. I mean, even the Merle Partridge story, which is always connected to the Mothman, is Merle Partridge lived like over an hour away from Point Pleasant. And, and I don't know if you're from you know aware. I'm sure you're aware of the Merle Partridge story, but that's the the guy the guy who had the dog Bandit, and he was watching TV with his wife, and strange patterns and stuff started to appear on the TV, and he went outside. Now that story has been told a couple different ways. In the initial, when you first heard that story, the way I was always familiar with it was that Partridge went outside and he saw the Mothman's eyes. But later in life, and in the interview I have that's going to be in our movie, um, Merle said that what he saw was more like a UFO in the sky. And his dog ran off in the direction of where these lights were um, behind his shed and was never seen again. So the the Partridge story, is a, is a obviously it's going to be touched on in our movie as well. But again, that's it, it took place over an hour away from Point Pleasant. And it was also after, if I remember right, it was after the uh, Scarberry Mallet report had been in the paper. Uh, Partridge, I feel like Partridge was before, but you might be right. I don't have my timeline in front of me right I mean, now. That, that's, that's, that's one of the things we're doing, you know, with our film. One of the things I want to do is be able to kind of show a timeline of these events because it is fascinating to go down the, the, the chronologically through everything that happened to be able to say, well, the Scarberry Mallet sightings here and Partridge is right here and this is here. And especially like trying to figure out who might have been influenced by somebody else's report. And, you know, it's, okay. it's, it's all, it's yeah. hard all these years later to, to detect, you know, how genuine somebody might have been. 
Yeah, Partridge was actually the day before the Scarberry oh, Mallet site. Okay, all right. So the uh, the other question that I had for you, and and you being from you know that that area and, and being familiar with with things that happened in that area, is there any correlation between the Mothman sightings and the Flatwoods monster? Uh, you know, I mean, other than the other than the the possibility of military involvement and the strangeness of that case, I don't. You know, I don't see any direct connection. And the glowing red eyes, I mean. And the glowing red eyes. But, I mean, that's you could connect that to every Bigfoot yeah. case there <laughs> exactly. is, too. Right. So, I mean, I don't see a direct connection, but I wish, you know. we're. I, I can tell you we're going to at least mention the Flatwoods case in our film because the Flatwoods case is like a dream project for me. And, unfortunately, it's just not something we can feasibly make because of the fact that there's either no witnesses or very few witnesses left to even talk about it. Yeah. Um, but there are other Mothmans, too, around around the world. I mean, there's Owlman in England, and, you know, sure. other people have seen creatures similar to Mothman. Definitely. And if you if you, if you you decide to bring in, like, Thunderbirds into the equation, it gets right. even bigger because... And, and I think we'll actually talk a little bit in the film about Thunderbird, um, the Thunderbird in, like, Native American lore and that kind of thing, because there's a connection there, too, where... Um, the Native Americans, you know, had a had a um, obviously Thunderbird legends where the bird was a harbinger of doom and that kind of thing as well. And we that's what we have in this area in the Bridgewater Triangle. You know, we have the the Thunderbird sightings that still go on to this day. We have a, a there was a police officer that reported seeing one. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, these these things have been uh, in this area, and and I think they can all be interconnected. As recently yeah. reported as last year. Yeah, I mean they're still around, and and what, one of the things that fascinates me about those type of sightings is when people, you know, when people are coming forward and, and seeing Bigfoot or some of these other creatures, you know, it's it's one of those things where could it be this? Could it be that? Could it be this? Could it be that? These flying humanoid sightings that people are reporting, they're usually very descriptive, and they're usually very, you know. I know that Joe Nickel will probably try to come, come up with a way to explain it away as being like some <laughs> large barn owl or something, but it, there's a lot less margin for error in some of the reports that you see about Mothman and about some of these giant winged humanoid creatures. Sure. I, I don't know. The, the, the barn owl thing to me is definitely, um, you could definitely try to, try to shoehorn that into some of these sightings, um, but to cover every sighting as like a blanket, well, this was a bar now. I don't, I don't know how you could be, and I know Joe is really familiar with the Mothman case, but I just don't know how you could possibly attribute that to to the bulk of the sightings. Because to me, that that per, that honestly makes less sense than a than an well, undiscovered listen, like. You and I both know a ghost could walk right up to Joe Nickel and slap him across the face, and he would say, "Well, obviously, I'm a paranoid schizophrenic." Yeah, like because he just can't admit the possibility that there's there's something out there. So he's going to find a way to crap on everything. Sure, sure, yeah, but yeah, you're right though. The the descriptions are very um, very descriptive. Well, that was a great turn of phrase there. Um, but we we almost every interview we did um, where we spoke with with people who had an initial sighting, you know, of the creature are are extremely descriptive. I mean they. It's almost like they relive that incident when they talk about it, um, especially like Faye DeWitt, the way she describes the eyes and the wings, and and every moment of that encounter seems to be ingrained in her mind. We we spoke to a guy, you'd like this one, actually, because this goes 
full-on paranormal. Um, we spoke to a guy who woke up in the middle of the night. It, this is 1966, keep in mind. Um, woke up in the middle of the night and said Mothman was standing uh, next to his bed. Whoa. Yeah, So, and he's going to be in the movie. I don't think he's ever told his story um, on camera either. So, so, But we spoke with him, and that was a really... He's the, he's the one that told us that it was the devil. So, and he... He um, he told us that he you know cl- claimed the blood of Jesus or whatever and it disappeared. Well, I mean, not to you know not to take this down some weird path, but it's not entirely impossible that if if there is a devil, that this couldn't be somehow related to that because you do have this you know tragedy that happens later on and 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 people seem to feel like the two things are connected. It's it's quite possible that this was some sort of entity of evil, just as much as it could have been a warning. Sure, I mean and. Like I said, he's not the only person that we spoke to who connected this thing to the devil. We, we, we've heard Lynn Scarberry say it before, and then Marcella Bennett. And this is the first time I've heard Marcella say this, but Marcella, and actually Jeff Walmsley, when I told him this, said he'd never heard her say this. Uh, Marcella, in the interview we have, said it was Satan. Said when, you know, that's the only thing she could connect, um, what she had seen too because of the feeling she had when she saw it she said there was a the fear that gripped her um and the the cold chills that ran down her spine and all that stuff she said the only thing she could attribute that fear to would be the devil i mean it really seems to have a other like i said earlier in the show you know other cryptid creatures that people report seeing you know lauren coleman will say it's entirely possible that these are some sort of being that we just haven't discovered yet or or has been lost to us over time or you know something that's an actual flesh and blood creature but that mothman and everything tied into the story just makes it the fact that it, it has to be a supernatural creature there there can't be an earthly explanation or at least a zoological explanation for what it is that people saw I mean, I I don't have a, a stake in the game yet. I I originally came at this from very much like a cryptid place. In fact, when we started doing preliminary kind of research on the story, the the early discussions I had about the movie with Brandon and Zach, my you know my crew was was that well, I think we're going to do like the the Mothman crypto movie. Um, but you know, like the story's so much bigger than than that that I want to tell. Um, and what I want to, you know, so so our story is more about everything that kind of happened over that 13-month span and how crazy things were. What, what Basically, what I want to do is put people in the mindset of what it would have been like being in Point Pleasant in 1966 and 67 leading up to that bridge collapse and how everything did seem to be following this pattern of escalation. Um, so, for you know, when... I know where Col- Coleman stands on it, and I'm definitely, you know, I've talked to you before. I'm, I'm still, I'm not a skeptic. I hate using the word skeptic because I'm not, I don't, I never would refer to myself as a skeptic, but I'm skeptical of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm still on the skeptical side when it comes to the story, but I can definitely tell you I have no concrete <laughs> theories or, I mean, every single time we come up with a thought as to what, you know, we think might have happened. Um, it gets shot down in some way. You know, like we, even while we were filming down in Point Pleasant last weekend, we were out at the factory, this site of literally at the spot where the Scarberries and Mallets saw the Mothman. And it was about, 
eight o'clock at night. It was it was dark. You know, we're out at the exact spot where they saw the Mothman. We're getting some shots, and um, one of one of the guys had apparently looked up at the factory in the dis- the smokestacks that are still there. The, the original factory's gone, but the the smokestacks in the distance uh, at the at the still functioning uh, factory across the street. Um, the smokestacks have these red lights on top of them. And when you look at them through the trees with the smoke coming up behind them, it looks like you're seeing two giant red eyes and wings behind it. And what's really creepy is as the smoke kind of makes its way from one to the other, they almost look like they're moving. Hmm. So we shot, we actually shot footage of it and took pictures. Um, and I don't know what I'm going to do with that because, you know, my fear then becomes, well, I don't want to be the guy who's attempting to debunk this because I'm not out to debunk anything. Our, our objective is just to document stories. But I thought that was an interesting kind of thing that you could be there and and say, well, look at the, you know, that could have been what the Scarberries and, and the Mallets saw. So, sure, that that that's totally possible. Maybe that is what the Scarberries and Mallets saw. But then what the heck did Faye DeWitt... <laughs> Right. See, and what did what did the you know the the pilots over at the Gallipolis Airport see, and what did Moral Partridge see? And it, every single time you come up with some sort of alternative theory, it's shot down by a thousand other ones. And that's the thing is, just because you can explain away one encounter, it doesn't discount everything else. Right. Uh, you know, unless it's a, a, a copycat syndrome, but this clearly isn't the case with these reports that have you know been coming through this. And then the other thing that that people uh, another common mistake that people make in the Mothman story is they think that when the Silver Bridge collapsed and, you know, 46 people died and that's the that's the end of the Mothman story. That's why Mothman was here, but it's not. There's been other sightings since then. Sure, yeah, yeah. We've spoken to, I think I've spoken personally to two witnesses since then, maybe three, who had sightings after the, long after the bridge collapsed. I mean, the most recent one that I've spoken to was 2009. Hmm. Um, and he actually had had a sighting in the TNT area um, while he was down there hunting one night. So, I mean, it, there's definitely still people that, that, you know, claim to have sightings of the creature, um, and they're not relegated to just Point Pleasant or, or even West Virginia. Like you said, there are sightings kind of all over the country of, of things that seem similar to the, to the Mothman. Well, we do have uh, open phone lines if anybody has a question for our guest, Seth Breedlove, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. You can also share questions in the chat room on SpookySouthCoast.com and on our YouTube channel and within our app, and you can tweet us as well using the hashtag SpookyLive. Uh, but, Seth, with chronicling this story, you know, it's... You started off with Minerva, which is a story that not a lot of people knew, and you've been covering some of these other monsters. I mean, is there a responsibility when covering something like Mothman? Do you do you feel like this is kind of something that you've built up to to be able to take on this bigger topic, or is it just kind of the way that things worked out? Uh, it's, it's definitely just the way things worked out. But what I do feel a responsibility to, to do is, to not just tell the same exact story that everyone's already seen a thousand times, right. you know, on, on multiple <laughs> documentaries. And, and obviously there's, it's a weird balance you have to strike when you're doing what we're doing because you, you don't want to get so hung up on the fact that, well, I got to bring something new to this that you're not just telling the story in your own voice. Um, but you do have to give people 
um, something that they haven't seen before. So um, our objective has been from the start to make sure that we are turning over new leafs and not solely rehashing things people have seen a thousand times, and also that we're we're doing a, a you know a, our part to preserve a part of this story that might have been lost. So we do have witnesses that haven't been in films before. We have aspects of the story that have definitely not been touched upon. Um, and we've got, because of Jeff Wamsley, we've got access to interviews with um, witnesses who've either passed away or can no longer kind of speak for themselves. So I actually think when it's all said and done, we'll have the largest number of original witnesses actually represented in our film. Um, so that's that's something that's a big deal for me since kind of our thing is giving the witnesses a voice for themselves rather than, mm-hmm. you know, we don't do a lot of recreations and things like that. So so definitely giving a voice to witnesses is, is a huge part in our films, and it's obviously going to be a huge part in this film. Um, but, yeah, yeah, there's a there's – I mean, every movie we've done has seemed like it's up the ante, you know, on the next – and uh, but yeah, it's completely different from where we started with Minerva, which was an undiscovered story. Well, but we, and we've talked about this in the past that the idea is that this series, the Small Town Monster series, is a way to focus in on these stories and legends. But are you starting to see these individual documentaries as maybe being chapters in an overall larger story that maybe all of these creatures and these monsters are somehow interconnected? I I haven't thought of it in that way, although. In the in the three that we're doing, so the first trilogy, which was Minerva, Beast White Hall, and Boggy Creek Monster, we're subtitle for those is Bigfoot. What we're doing right now is subtitled High Strangeness. Mm-hmm. So Mothman kicks off the High Strangeness trilogy. We're doing Mothman, then we're doing Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, and then we're doing something in 2018. Although we haven't 100 uh, percent decided what that's going to be, but it's going to be a really you know kind of bizarre story. And we've got stories we're already looking into for the next one. And I do see a lot of similarities between these stories. You know, the the really bizarre kind of tales. In the it's it's always multiple things. To, you know, multiple different bizarre phenomena that are taking place simultaneously. Rather than you know, b- most of the Bigfoot stories we've we've covered, especially Boggy Creek Monster, are pretty pretty much just ground level kind of monster stories. Mm-hmm. And while in in the case of Whitehall and Minerva, there are weirder aspects to them for the most part it's it's just a creature that someone sees you know and it, it it's not like it's levitating or throwing you know orbs at them or anything like that but the the high strangeness area that we're into is is uh, there's a lot of correlations between the the stories that we're covering right now the mothman and invasion on chestnut ridge well as our friend greg newkirk always says and his t-shirts proclaim bigfoot is a ghost so that uh, <laughs> that there just ties everything all weird just together. Uh, there's a question from Sam in the chat room. He wants to know if you've ever considered doing a documentary on any monsters from the New England area. Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, so I, I, I'm, I, I actually got to spend some time with Lauren Coleman this past year, and so two of his early cases that I'm a fan of are the Dover Demon and the Enfield Horror. So at some point, I'd love to get up that way just to do something about, you know, like the Dover Demon. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but it's it's a story I'd love to cover. Um, I don't know. We worked with Paul Bartholomew a lot during Beast of Whitehall, and he's kind of up in that area. He's not as far up into New England as as you guys are, but 
he he always talks about the Bennington Triangle. I'm yeah. not sure if you're familiar with oh, that. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, yeah. He he. I don't. Is that even considered New England? I don't even know if you would consider that. Yeah, no. That's that's Vermont, right? That's that's yeah, part of that's part of New England. Uh, Sam Sam actually has uh, a story from Salem, Massachusetts. He could share with you too as well. They have cool. their own uh, weird creature. Uh, but Dover Demon is very interesting because. Uh, you know, on the 30th anniversary of the sighting, uh, Matt Moniz, my co-host, him and it was uh, John, John Horgan, right? Yeah. They go up there to try and, you know, on the 30th anniversary, they're up there reporting live from the field while we're on the air. And we had Lauren on as the guest and we're talking about it. And didn't the police show up and throw everybody else out, but they let you guys yeah. stay? It, that was interesting because we started up at the top of the hill where uh, the guys in the Volkswagen saw the thing on the wall. And we started reporting from there and working our way down uh, the point at each sighting, and we noticed that you know these deer jumped over the wall at the same point, and they were following the river going down. And we kept running into the river at each point, and you know uh, with the sighting. But being the anniversary, fifty million other people decided they wanted to show up too. But the the police let us stay because we were part of a radio show and <laughs> promoting this, and uh, we had police escorts. It was kind of kind of neat. Usually yeah. it doesn't work that way. Usually they yeah. throw everybody, everybody out, out. <laughs> especially the long-haired, crazy-looking guy who's walking around, you know, with another guy who's, you know, wide-eyed and, you know, getting all excited for this stuff. You guys must look like a couple of nuts out there. Uh, they were very... Looked like? Yeah. Well, John looks like a normal person. He just gets very excitable about things. Well, I meant him. So, yeah. Mar- I, already yeah. Sa- I already offered to sacrifice him tonight, so... It's it's not too late. We still it's got not. 10 minutes in the show. We do. So, but there are certainly plenty of stories up this way, Seth, that, that you could cover. But obviously, you know, with what you guys have planned already, I mean, you've got your hands full with this stuff. Uh, what, do you have an idea of when the, the Point Pleasant documentary will be finished? Yeah, we're shooting for June 2nd is the planned release date. The only thing that could hinder that would be how that plays out with trying to get the release to time out with, like, iTunes and Google Play because of the length of time I have to wait from the time I submit a movie to when it actually goes up on iTunes and Google Play. I want to make sure this time uh, when the movie comes out that it's available kind of everywhere. So I might have to push it back, but I'm not 100% sure. And it, June 2nd should work out. That's that's currently the plan. And then Invasion, which is our fifth movie, should be out by Halloween. Well, I mean, either way, I mean, it should hopefully be out in time for the next uh, Mothman Festival. It's Yeah, the... the the big screen kind of first public debut of the movie will be at the Mothman Festival. We wanted to we wanted to do something, you know, so we could tie the two in together. And Jeff and Ashley have been so awesome about everything that, you know, for sure. I mean, it, we were there last year at the festival, and we had a, an amazing event with with nothing but like three Bigfoot movies. So, um, you know, going down there and and being able to be a part of it in in a way other than just as a vendor is is really exciting for us. So the plan is, and we're still working out all the details, but the plan is that that will be kind of the big. Uh, big screen debut of the movie, but, and you know, we had we had like the um, we launched a Kickstarter for it on what like two weeks ago now, mm-hmm. and that's how we funded the post production of the Mothman movie. And the Kickstarter is still going on, but we launched the movie on a Thursday night at seven o'clock, and by eight fifty one p.m. the the project was one hundred and ten percent funded. So. Wow. And and a lot of that had to do with Mothman Museum because they were like, 
they were helping promote the the event as it was going on, and there were you know people who were huge Mothman fans uh, who were backing it, and and uh, so that's been really cool too. Well, and uh, and people can still make donations, though, right? Even if they want to, yeah. keep putting in support, so you can. Yeah, do that. we've got. I think we've got like thirteen days left in the campaign, and like this is our probably my favorite of the campaigns we've run, just because like we have a really cool Mothman T-shirt, and then we have. The guys from Creature Replica, which do like they they do like an action figure line of creature like cryptid toys. They um, they actually are doing a Mothman statue soon, and they're do- doing like a special variant that's going to be a part of the Kickstarter campaign. So there's actually like a Mothman statue in our campaign and everything. So yeah, yeah, we're running for 13 days still. Not that I'm keeping track. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Go and check it out uh, on the Kickstarter site. But, uh, I mean, there must be also some degree of, and, and I think we've talked about this before with Minerva, but there, there's some degree of, you know, trepidation when you're showing this film to the people of the town. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, that's going to be your most critical audience out of anybody that sees the film. It's horrifying. It's, <laughs> I, you can't, like, you can't underscore how terrifying it is because, um, and, and I guess in a way, most people would be like, well, who cares? Like, if they don't like it, what's going to happen? But, like, there really is a responsibility on our part not to screw this up um, and not to make them look bad and make the town look bad and make the people that are in the movie look bad. So when you show it um, to them in particular, there's it's yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. The worst was when we showed... Not the worst, but the most nervous I've ever been. We we went and showed Minerva Monster to the family, you know, that's in the movie in the house, the same house where the Minerva Monster actually, you know, walked up to the window and all that. We showed them the movie the first time sitting in their living room with them, wow. um, and and that was absolutely horrifying. That was more terrifying than watching the movie with like five hundred people from the town for me. I don't know why, but. Yeah, it's always it's always a big part of it, and uh, I think it'll be a little different, I would imagine, with Point Pleasant, just because that story has been covered so many times. I really think most people there couldn't care less that we're doing this. I honestly don't. I, and and one of the reasons I think that is because we've we've contacted the local paper, you know, because like that's one of the way we help get publicity for our films while we're working on them is I contact local press. And uh, their their local paper hasn't even responded <laughs> responded to nothing. Like they're they're probably just like, oh, this yokel's back. Like there's another film crew in town. I mean, one of the guys in our movie told us he's been interviewed forty times. Wow. Yeah. Probably going all the way back to you know in search of days. Sure. Yeah. And, and what's funny is that newspaper they'll be like, you know, maybe the first week of September we'll call you when we're getting ready yeah. for the festival, but. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's what's fascinating to me is that, you know, you can take a look at a story like this and still find a different way to tell the story, still be able to unearth things that people haven't heard before. And, uh, and if it's anything like the previous films in the series, people are going to just be blown away by what you do. Yeah, I think, I think they will. And it was very nerve wracking up until about a week ago because I was keenly aware of all the other filmed entertainment about the Mossman case. And I was, aware that if we didn't deliver you know something 
um, outside the norm that that I would uh, I could potentially be letting people down. And there's you know you're always going to be able to introduce people to a story. There's always going to be people out there who aren't aware of Mothman who you're just kind of introducing the story to. But still, like even even having said that, there's there's a thousand people who want to watch a million people who want to watch movies about the Mothman who don't want to just sit down and watch the same thing every time. Right. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely excited, not just with the, the interviews we got and stuff, but the footage. I mean, the footage we've captured over the last couple of weeks. I sent you guys, uh, a couple, uh, had a chance to watch them, but like some of the footage, mm-hmm. uh, even ungraded, just raw footage looks fantastic. And the best part about this movie, no Richard Gere to get in the way of the story. <laughs> yeah, not yet. We, we're talking <laughs> to him. We're trying. We're trying to get him in. You know? I mean, you kind of have to, right? It's, it's worth trying. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's ignoring us. But uh, if you if you get the injured cold interview, that's the stuff. That's what I want to see the raw footage of. Yeah, well, that's that's the secret interview that Jeff oh, okay. gave us. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Seth Breedlow, for joining us uh, again. Everybody can check out the Small Town Monsters website, smalltownmonsters.com, if you want to find out more about this film and the other films in the series and follow along with everything they have working. Uh, absolutely recommend it. It's, it's a lot of fun talking with you. I always love having you on as a guest. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We'll definitely do it again. Uh, when the next one comes out. Cool. Thanks man. All right. Have a great night. You too. That is Seth Breedlove. And you can follow him individually on Twitter with the best Twitter handle of any of our guests, Seth breeds love at Seth breeds love. So that's, that's funny. You can't, you can't miss it. You know, it's easy to find. So uh, always great talking with him. Always great talking about these these monsters and to talk about something that's kind of out of the realm of what we usually discuss here on the show, but yet kind of still has a tie into all that stuff. Of so there's Point Pleasant ghosts that we didn't, you know, we didn't really even get into that. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, as he mentioned, UFO sightings and Men in Black sightings. So it's fascinating. I mean, it's one of those places where, you're like, I would like to go spend a week there sometime just to kind of immerse myself in all that. You're on your own with the big bird. Not even you don't even like that stuff. I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess I can't say until I experience it. But the but. injured, the injured cold stuff freaked you out a little, didn't it? You can you can admit it. Maybe. I mean, to not only be an alien, but to admit to everybody that you are. Yeah, it's weird. It's definitely strange. I always thought it would be a great name for a band. I actually recommended it when we when we started the EVPs. I actually recommended Injured Cold as our name, but yep. we thought it was too obscure. And then it turns out that I think there's actually a band called that. Oh, really? Yes. There's one called Valiant Thor. There's there's bands that are called the two names that I was putting out, Injured Cold and Spring Heel Jack, both already band names. So Disappointing. But the and EVPs worked. It did, especially since, you know, that's how a lot of people would have liked to have heard our music. Right. Just as like a silent little whisper that they could barely make See out. That? All right. Bad. Well, that does it for the. You can check us out on YouTube. Just look up the EVPs. Uh, that does it for this week's edition of Spooky South Coast. We'll be back next week with a, a brand new show for you. Remember to follow along with us on social media. Follow along with us on Twitter and Facebook, and download our app. It's free for Android and Apple users, so you can follow along with everything that has to do with the show through the app. It's the easiest way to get everything. We highly recommend that's the way that you do things. And uh, you can always reach out to us anytime during the week on Twitter at SpookySC or by email SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. So that does it for this week's show. Until next week, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, for Chris, I'm Tim. Stay spooktacular.